We are kicking things off with a word from our sponsor. The new streaming service, Film Movement Plus, opens a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best films from around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are some of the best films from 2020, including The Wild Goose Lake, Zombie Child, and more. Available on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, as well as streaming online and on mobile, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But as a listener of Watch with Jen, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code WATCHWITHJEN, all one word. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen. Well, today's guest is a Rotten Tomatoes approved critic and a podcaster in her own right, the wonderful Rosa Parra, a member of the Hollywood Critics Association, the Latino Entertainment Journalist Association, Gallica, and a fellow member of the Online Association of Female Film Critics. Rosa is also the co-founder and co-host of Latinx or Latinx Lens. In this fun and informative podcast and companion website, Rosa focuses on highlighting Latinx representation and contributions in film and television. Additionally, Rosa, along with her co-writers and co-hosts, review all movies with their unique Latinx lens, lending a vital, underrepresented perspective on cinema. An endlessly kind and supportive Twitter presence you can find her at Rosa's Reviews. I am so pleased to have her here today. Welcome, Rosa. How are you doing and how is spring treating you so far? (laughs) Thank you so much for for having me and for that beautiful intro. Now I have to live up to that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, No, I I am very excited and very much happy and just Again, internally, my internal fangirl is just kicking out because I've been following you for quite a while and I'm a big fan of everything you do. So uh, when you sent me that message, man, it still feels a bit surreal. So, um, Oh, you're too nice. (laughs) No, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I've been been doing good, you know. Um, Overall, I've been doing good. Uh, I've been very privileged and lucky to uh, been on the brighter side of the pandemic and 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 to have had uh, the the again the privilege of of still having a job of still doing what I do and then yeah. to do this on the side so I can't complain <laughs> I I am doing yeah. very great so again yeah. thank you thank you so much perfect well Rosa you really are a superwoman you balance an important <laughs> nine-to-five job and a family and personal life along with all of your impressive contributions to film criticism both on the pod and the website so what is a typical week like for you how do you get everything done and I guess my real concern here Rosa is are you making time to sleep and eat because you're amazing and I'm a little worried so how do you do it <laughs> You know what? Um, I think if something 
uh, important I've learned from motherhood is how to function on uh, yes. with insomnia, <laughs> <laughs> how to function with such little sleep. Uh, motherhood has certainly trained me how to do that fairly well. And because of that, and, and I'm not, I'm not saying I work. Um, I'm currently functioning on one, two hours sleep, but oh if gosh. I get four hours, I'm good. Um, okay. I, I should be able to, I should be able to function throughout the day. So four or five hours, I'm good. If I'm lucky, I'll get six, <laughs> but you know what? I, I just wake up and I just do what, what I set my mind to. I don't think there's really uh, a special formula for it or anything like that. Um, it's a just typical day. I, I wake up at four in the morning and wow. Uh, yeah. I wake up at four in the morning, get ready, go to work. I, get into work at six. Um, and then I get out at three. And it's the commute back from because I, I work at downtown LA. So it's the commute back from downtown LA to where I live that takes a bit um, more time, I can be in traffic for an hour and a half, almost two hours, depending on the day. Oh, my God, the gorgeous, beautiful LA traffic that we all know and love. <laughs> So how do you get through the traffic, though? Are you like a podcast person or a playlist person? Uh, yes, a little bit of everything. I, I try to uh, multitask as much as possible. And because I am doing school as well, um, oh I, I listen, I do my lectures while I'm driving. Wow. Yeah, I do my lectures and then, yeah, I just try to do as much as possible. Um, but yes, I, I do uh, listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm a big fan of uh, a lot of people. So yeah, driving certainly uh, helps me a lot in terms of getting homework done or, or getting ready to do homework when I get home or even that's my me time. <laughs> that, that's my only me time that I get. So <laughs> there any ideas I get uh, either for my own podcast or anything else to do, getting prepared to be a guest uh, for other podcasts or interviews, Q&As or anything like that. All of that, all that thinking gets done on my commutes. <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. Wow. Yes. So then you're, you're out of there at three, like in mm -hmm. traffic for almost two hours, almost two hours. Yeah. And when do you and you how do you do like screenings on top of that? Is it just fit them in mm -hmm. as you can? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just try to do them as I can. Um, if I get downtime at work, I'll be able to um, squeeze in one or two <laughs> yeah. while I'm working uh, or during lunch during lunch during my breaks so it kind of adds up <laughs> wow. so yeah just whenever I can I, I've come to use time as as every little time I get whatever it is whether I'm in I don't know in the drive-thru or I'm waiting in line for groceries I'm always uh, using time and and either I'm either reading or just making the best use of my time I love that much. so much well, what have you been working on lately are there any new upcoming or recent projects you would like to highlight Yes. Yeah, so coming out soon, it's going to be, um, well, we're for, for Latinx Lens, we're going to be releasing an episode, our review episode on, uh, we're, we're going to be reviewing Cruella, we're going to be reviewing A Quiet Place Part 2, um, 
army the army of the dead and then a a film that a lot of people are not really aware of but it just came out a few days ago it's blast beat uh, i saw it back at sundance 2020 it just got it released a few days ago um cool but yeah we're, we're going to be releasing that episode quite soon and then upcoming next week i am going to be moderating a q a for uh, La Leaf, uh, which is Los Angeles wow. um, Latino International Film Festival. So, yes, I, I've been <laughs> very Congratulations. privileged. Thank you. That Thank you so awesome, much. That is awesome, Rosa. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so much fun. Hopefully, you won't get a lot of those. I don't really have a question. It's more of a comment type of. Yeah. Yeah. You'll have to, like, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. So, top of it. Yes. <laughs> yes. But we'll see how it goes. I'm a little nervous. A little, it's a little nerve wracking. Oh, you've got it. It's, you'll do Yeah. That. But we'll see. We got to try this. We got to do this. Otherwise, yeah. I won't grow or learn. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. No, you're going to be fine. Well, <laughs> when it came time to select the topic for this week's episode, mm-hmm. I love how confident and decisive you were in wanting to discuss. <laughs> Three incredibly gifted Mexican <laughs> filmmakers, three Oscar winners whose work I've followed for decades, and I'm sure you have too. The three men collectively mm-hmm. known as the Three Amigos Alfonso Coron, Guillermo del Toro, and Alejandro Gonzalez Inuratu. While we'll go deeper into their work in a moment, I wanted to ask what it is about the three singular storytellers and their work that makes them so fascinating, do you think? Yes, it's a variety of elements, a variety of reasons. At the time when um, I received your message, I think for Latinx Lens, we were just starting uh, to highlight each one of them individually. And I think I was just <laughs> in, the, in that mood, in that environment. I was so invested in just yeah. reading books, diving into research and just trying to get backstories and behind the scenes uh, research. So I was like, you know what, if, if I'm going to talk and I want to sound smart and I want to know, it sound like I know what I'm saying and I know what I'm doing, <laughs> I'm further off <laughs> talking about these three uh, directors who, to me, um, as, as a Mexican-American or a Chicana or as a Latina, it, it's important <laughs> to highlight that Absolutely. very few uh, Mexican, well, Mexican-Latino directors are currently working in Hollywood. And these are perhaps the few Academy Award winners to be out there. Yeah. So, yes, it's certainly their their filmography, and it's just incredible. I, I love each and every single one of them. Um, I, I do have an unpopular opinion that I tend to prefer Iñárritu out of the three, uh, but I'm pretty sure we can, we'll get into that in a bit. Oh, yeah. Uh, huh? I said, you're fine. I, oh. <laughs> I was a huge fan. I love them all. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And and and, it, and it's not by much. It's just by a little yeah. bit. Um, but I think that, yeah, the three of them are so incredible. And I think something that captures more my attention about the three is the friendship they have. Their bond. I know. I love that so much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How they collaborate with one another. They yeah. pick each other's brains. And, and I just find that fascinating. You can see their influences yes. on one another. Like when one <laughs> yeah. does something, all of a sudden it's like, ooh, we're seeing the fantastical side of a different yes. director we hadn't before. So it is really cool. Right. Absolutely. Well, obviously we could have chosen any of the three to do an episode on. And 
listeners, be sure you check out that series over on Latinx Lens, the podcast. And then for us, we could have then come back to record then two more episodes and done them all separately. And it would have been great, but (laughs) you've got that covered. I'm very excited. But I think there (laughs) is something so magical about covering them all at once here. Since stylistically and thematically, there are some notable differences, but also a lot of similarities in what drives their narratives. We should probably warn listeners that there might be spoilers ahead when it comes to both the films we're tackling. And that's going to be Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban and Children of Men for Coron, Crimson Peak and The Shape of Water for Del Toro and Amoris Peros and 21 Grams for Inuratu, along with others that we might just reference along the way. So if you haven't seen them, do proceed with caution. I usually go chronologically through the titles. So I thought we would probably dive in alphabetically with the filmmakers and then go through the films chronologically with which was released first. And that brings Mm -hmm. us to our first director, who incidentally was the first one of the three, I think, to really break out in the U.S. He was a 90s favorite of mine who remains a director. I'm always eager to discuss Alfonso Coron. Before we go into the films, what are your thoughts on Coron and his gorgeous body of work? Oh, man. It's, I think, out of the three, he is the one that has the most diverse I set agree. of films yes. in his filmography. And, and that's just fascinating to me. The, yeah. the fact that this man can go from a, uh, from Itumama Tambien to Harry Potter to Children of Men to Gravity, it's just mind-boggling. It really, um, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. It's very mind-boggling. And certainly a, a director um, I just became very much familiarized with um, getting into film criticism and, and so on, even though unknowingly uh, growing up uh, in a very predominantly Mexican household, they, the, the director I heard of the most while growing up was, of course, Guillermo del Toro. He's probably the most famous and well-known out of the three. But the, the movies that I would always listen to, either family members or my parents discussing um, a lot, it was always Ito Mama También and Amores Perros. Oh, wow. So, yeah, yeah. So without knowingly, I guess I was already, (laughs) they've been part of even uh, my my upbringing and so on. So uh, Alfonso Cuaron is certainly one of those directors who, to this, at this point, I can safely say that regardless of the theme, regardless of the synopsis, regardless of anything, any actor or whoever's writing the script, if I know he's behind that realm of that film, I'm going to sit there and watch it because that that man is just brilliant. (laughs) He really is. Did you see like a little princess or great expectations back in the, in the nineties era, or you might be a little young for that. I'm not sure, but yeah. 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 I'm not as young as you think. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, You're just we actually, uh, yeah. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, for Latinx Lens, we covered Great Expectations. Uh, it was not a little princess. We covered Ito Mama Tambien, and we also did Children of Men. Um, okay, perfect. But yes, I did sit, uh, did watch A Little Princess because I was reading and hearing a lot about how that film is the reason why he lands um, Harry Potter, aside from other outside factors. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've seen those films. Again, <laughs> it's still 
it, it just a bit crazy to to that he did Itomama también and then the little princess completely different films narratively yes. thematically and it's just amazing I know it really is and he was brought over to the states uh, by Sidney Pollack he did that mm-hmm. yeah I uh, can't remember was it called Fallen Angels uh, was a neo-noir miniseries that he was directing like one mm. part of it Soderbergh mm-hmm. did one Tom Cruise I think did one it was yeah I've always been trying to chase that and trying to track it down because that would have been yeah. really cool to see but yeah right. I remember watching A Little Princess when I was little and um, just the color story of the film really struck with me or stuck with me and then when I saw Great Expectations it was one of my favorite experiences as a teenager going to the movie theater to see because uh, we had passes to go to the press screening for it and I was mm-hmm. just 17 and I remember on the way out you could walk out with a Revlon swag bag and it had all the like burgundy deep wine color uh, makeup that Gwyneth Paltrow wore in the movie so then I felt really special it was at the Mall of America and I just remember the music for the film his stuff is very impressionistic at least that Mm -hmm. early stuff it's just very romantic and dreamy and you just lose yourself in it in that world so it was interesting then when I was a little older and saw um Itu Mama Tambien yeah and uh it was like you know the gritty realism sort of French new wave inspired totally different and yeah and then he carried on and just like well you thought that was different I'm gonna knock your socks off with the next one I love that about him yeah yes yes Uh, yes I, I completely agree yeah well launching right into his body of work we're bypassing Quaron's 90s output including mm-hmm. that sweet, sensitive adaptation of A Little Princess and the lush, campy, sexy, great expectations and catching up with Coron in the early aughts after returned to Mexico from Hollywood and directed the sensational breakout E Tu Mama Tambien, which was a hit around the world, along with Inuratu's Amores Peros. Uh, that film also made Gael Garcia Bernay and his Tambien co-star Diego Luna, household names. Quaron followed up the sexually charged provocative road movie with possibly the unlikeliest project you could imagine, picking up the franchise reins kickstarted by Chris Columbus in order to helm the third, and I still say best installment of Harry Potter, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, ambitious, sweeping, and feistier than its predecessors, This film finds the kids played by Daniel Radcliffe, Emma Watson, and Rupert Grint growing up and Harry uncovering more about his legendary origins, including his ties to the mysterious escaped prisoner Sirius Black, played by Gary Oldman. It's truly something special and still plays like gangbusters. Two years after this, Poirot released one of the strongest dystopian films of the 21st century with 2006's Children of Men starring Clive Owen, Julianne Moore, Michael Caine, Chiwetel Ejiofor, and more. The film set in the year 2027 foreshadows a world driven mad by human infertility, war, and global and environmental catastrophe. It takes a docudrama approach to put you right in the middle of the harrowing journey undertaken by Clive Owen. In the film, based upon the novel by P.D. James, Owen plays a former activist turned bureaucrat 
forced back into the fold of his estranged wife's militant refugee rights group, where after a shocking ambush, it is revealed that one of the immigrants they're escorting is the only pregnant woman on earth in 18 years. I love both of these films for very different reasons, so I'm very glad you selected them, since it'll be terrific to compare and contrast such vastly different works. What are your thoughts on these two movies by Corone and the stage in his career? Yes, I, I find it very impressive that his follow-up film of from Itumama Tambien ends up being Harry Potter. It, it, they could not be more at the opposite end of the spectrum. <laughs> they really couldn't, no. And it, it's funny how... Um, he gets in, into Harry Potter uh, because after he finished doing Ito Mama Tambien, he was already, uh, he had already finished writing a script and he was giving the script and, and offering the script and asking uh, to see if he can get it produced. He, and he was just rejected and rejected and rejected. Mm -hmm. And he had op been offered uh, the, the Harry Potter series the, the, the prisoner of Azkaban and he was initially hesitant <laughs> to accept that. it yes yes I was like what why would you be hesitant <laughs> I was I was watching an interview he did and he said I didn't want to do it because I watched the first one and I didn't like it <laughs> <laughs> he was honest yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He was honest. He's like, I watched the first one. I did not like it. And but my script that I had just finished, it was not getting accepted. It they, they would just kept rejecting it. So of course, he ends up having this conversation with Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. And Guillermo del Toro asks him, have you read the books? And he, Cuaron's like, no, I have not read the books. He's like, do not talk to me until you've gone and read the books. And then we'll have this conversation. So long story short, he reads the books. He ends up accepting Harry Potter and, and The Prisoner of Azkaban, which I am in the same boat as you. I think it is the best film of the franchise. It really <laughs> it is. is. certainly the best looking one. <laughs> it really, oh my gosh, it's so gorgeous. Michael Saracen. Yes. Lubezki was too busy, so he had to use right. Saracen. Saracen right. adapted to his style. It's a knockout visually. Yeah. Yes, yes. It's certainly the best looking out of the franchise. And it's I think this movie is it's certainly responsible for first um bringing this darkness and this gritty gritty elements in, into the franchise. I think if Guaron would not have nailed uh, this particular film, I'm not entirely sure how the following, how the rest of the films would have followed for the rest of the franchise. Because mm -hmm. the first two films are very much child-like, very much, very, um, in, not innocent, but yeah, very much child-like. And, and, and it's this third one where it gets all dark and, and then you have more of these... Um, these these darker horror kind of elements yes. that he he certainly nailed and man I, I think this this film is certainly again the best out of the franchise and it, it, it's you you have it well I I've been very lucky to have seen all of his films and you kind of notice some of his techniques and when it yep. comes to filmmaking and one of them is just the panning shots that he just tends to have with with oh yeah 
and and they're very much noticeable in this Harry Potter film. Only in this one, he mm-hmm. yeah, he just has these panning shots, and you can tell everything. The actors and of course the camera people. A lot of choreograph, kind of like a waltz kind of thing. It really and is. Yeah. I love. Yes, I I love how he utilizes the entire frame. He does not waste one inch of any frame utilizes it and even is capable of telling one or two stories at once just with one shot he really does yeah yes he certainly does and it's more evident in this harry potter film and and it's just man it's, it's just fascinating to see how much um how he can go jump from genre to genre and just get into this literally a blockbuster film and nail it like yeah so easily I know he loves the handheld cameras that are fitted with those wide angle lenses to give the false sense of almost like improvisation or Mm -hmm. freedom like we move with it but it's all very carefully choreographed classically stylized with the framing I mean it's very modern with the constant movement of the camera but he's very careful of placement and you're Mm -hmm. it. you hit the nail right on the head when you talked about he can tell like two different stories in the single frame because often you have like harry off to the side or he's separated sometimes with physical barriers like a a column or some bricks or something and he's on one side and the other characters are on another side or he's all alone in the frame sometimes off kilter it's mm-hmm. really subtle. It's really careful. It's kind of film school. What a one, um, like only the nerds are going to really probably pick up on it. Everyone yeah. else is just going to maybe not understand why they're getting that same emotional feeling. But for all the geeks, it's like, oh, wow, I see what yes. you're doing. So I love yes. that. And the darker color palette. Absolutely right. It reminded me yeah. a little bit of Burton. And I remember Mm. um, Del Toro actually in an interview said he was approached like he was in uh, the consideration for Mm -hmm. the books and talked about the or to bring the books to life. And his issue was those early movies he thought were just too light, too bright and too cheery for what eventually takes place in these books. And now keep in mind when this was made, people didn't know what was going to come later on to Harry but we knew it was going to get darker and darker and darker yeah Yeah. and I love how much how hands-on Coron is too with his post-production like that's why he couldn't direct the fourth one which I think is maybe the weakest one of the series actually but um you know he was in post-production for like two it the whole start to finish of making this movie was like two years of his life that's why we have fewer than you would imagine films for um, some of his contemporaries because he's that hands-on. I love it. Yes, yes. I, I dig the foreshadowing too, like the bird that flies over. You kind of follow mm-hmm. the bird's eye view and all the places we watch the bird go are going to yes. come in yes. later on, like with the whole time turner sequence. I mean, it's just really great stuff. Yeah, I love it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Same. And I I certainly also notice a lot that this film does have a lot of like outside and and nature shots. Uh, And you're right. Yes. And and it's certainly, uh, of course, realism and, and, and all those shots, which he tends to to love. And 
it's something also that I it's been very noticeable with Guaron's films is that he likes to tell stories that are about transformation. And this one is certainly a coming, probably not coming of age just yet, but probably coming of young adulthood. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because yes, the first two, they're, they're children, but this one, they are certainly young adults. And just to see that, um, see the fact that he accepted to do this movie because of that transformative uh, storyline, yes. that transformative narrative, uh, certainly um, something worth noting. But yeah, it, everything about it, the, the way he uses light, the light uh, in, in different areas, outdoors, and, and then when they're also indoors, the angles, I mean, everything. Yeah. <laughs> this is certainly... I agree with the best in, in the franchise and uh, yeah, I, I just loved everything about it. And, and, and I love that also very noticeable is how he's very, he loves to use windows or openings. Um, yes. It's, it's, yes. A lot of those shots are either through windows or through openings and when you see his films, it becomes more evident, more noticeable, even with his earlier, uh, earlier filmography, like Mama Tambien and the earlier mm -hmm. ones also, windows and openings either like. Oh, it's all over the place. Yes. And, um, either and Little Princess and Great yes. Expectations as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I haven't and even I just seen like his, um, his big breakout movie. Uh, have you, have you seen it? His uh, one he made in Mexico that helped launch him in America. Y tu Mama um, Tambien? Oh no, the one like a decade earlier that he made. Um, let me grab the name of it. Uh, not the one that um, really did a or was a splash at Toronto, where uh, Sidney Pollock invited him uh, kind of to America to make that. Mm, I'm trying solo to remember to Pareja from nineteen. Uh, solo con tu pareja. I have not seen that one. I have not. No. Yeah. No. So I wondered, like, maybe were the windows in there? I mean, anyone listening, if you've seen it and you know, feel free to let us know because I'm curious. But yeah, yeah same. it is kind of a motif. And in Children of Men, we see it as well. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That movie is a knockout. So you had just seen it because you did. Um, you covered that movie on your podcast. Mm -hmm. My friend uh, Blake Howard in my pandemic movie club chose mm -hmm. that in April. So we watched it then, but I wanted to watch it again to talk to you about it. It's, it's that good. I remember seeing it at the theater when it first came out and it was, I think my favorite film of the year. It just mm -hmm. blew me away. I think we had a lot of those dystopian movies after like the turn of or the new millennium and also 9-11 I mean think about it if you're like if you remember listeners we had like World War Z and I am legend the 28 days later 28 weeks later the yeah. uh, day of the dead or dawn of the dead remake can't remember which we had mm -hmm. a lot of these movies but I think this is the one that really uh stands the test of time it's mm -hmm. marvelous so what are your thoughts on this one it's six years away. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Yes. It, watching it, and I'm more like, relatable. <laughs> it's so prescient, too. Like the stuff they're talking about with the environment and, you know, wars that are lasting like that long. And, yeah. um, oh my goodness. Yes. 
Could it yes. be any timelier to be like Chandler Bang or something? Yeah. Right? <laughs> Seriously, it is. Yes. <laughs> Could it be? I yeah. completely agree. Um, I know. It's eerie, man. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And it, it's, again, the fact that he goes from Harry Potter to this, <laughs> yeah. to Children of Men, it's also mind-boggling. And his London phase. Yeah. yeah. Very different yes. sides of London people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, absolutely. And... Just the fact that I, I guess the success of Harry Potter obviously landed him this this film, but the script that I was talking about earlier that he was pitching the studios was the script of Children of Men, and nobody will take it until he successfully did Harry Potter. And okay. then they were like, okay, we'll reconsider it. <laughs> yeah, like, I guess. They're like, yeah. okay, <laughs> if you insist. Yeah. Um, Man, Children of Men, I, it, it, this is certainly one of those films that it's in a lot of people's list um, as one of the best films, period, <laughs> regardless really of who, is. Who, who directed the movie. And for, for me, of course, as a Latina, certainly uh, something that I take a lot of pride in, the fact that Absolutely. one of our own is able to direct something like this, um, that yeah. he can go big franchise movie and do something so masterful uh mm-hmm. like like this movie in my opinion um I, I i watched roma i'm not in love with the movie as a lot of people are i i still think children of men is his best film um mm-hmm. but i know a lot of people don't uh, <laughs> don't necessarily agree I with me i think this is his best film actually is it yeah i i, I loved roma but this I think is better yeah right right yes and to just tell this story come out of nowhere and I I think what works really well in this movie is well of course (laughs) you have one of the best cinematographers working alongside him and amazing yes yes we've been debating on whether we should be doing an episode on Lubezki (laughs) and a lot of people are like he deserves an episode so, so he like, does okay, we- yes <laughs> he deserves <laughs> his own must- podcast come on yeah you know what you know what you that's not a bad idea actually i mean <laughs> not a bad idea. did it let's yeah yeah, yeah. Yes. let's have yes. a Lubezki. yeah yeah first cinematographer to win back to back to back the academy award for cinematography man yeah, he deserves something yes he does <laughs> yes so it, 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 to go back <laughs> to, to, to children of man oh man we 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 can talk about this film i think we can talk about it for hours depending on how we decide to approach this film whether it's from the directing whether it's the cinematography whether it's the story whether it's the acting whether it's the yeah. just, however we decide the sound that intro oh my god that introduction um that that intro is just mind-boggling to just see an introduction like that the first few minutes of the movie and to just establish the whole environment to establish what we're getting ourselves into and it's just beautifully shot beautifully done and how he, he he can go from it, it seems like we're 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 starting. He's shooting like from a surveillance camera, and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, so seamlessly, it's just you're just walking behind this character. I'm like, wait, how did we go from here? It's just like a single shot. Yeah. Um. And and just how how it starts, and 
you have the explosion that I did not see coming at all. I jump every time. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Even after you've seen it a few times, you still jump. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Uh. And and just to end that sequence with literally a woman walking out, holding her own arm in her hand. (laughs) I was like, what is this? Like, what did I just go watch? Yeah. And then it's established within the few minutes of the film. And it's so eerie, too, because every time, again, just like with the explosion that makes me jump, yes. at the beginning of the movie, when you see, like, the logos, usually you would hear music. And yeah. you hear it's completely silent. silent. And so I'm always like, do I have my receiver on? What is going on? And then all of a sudden you get the voiceover or the, you know, the sound. Mm. And you're like, oh, okay, now we're with it. The acting, too. I mean, the entire cast is incredible. I always forget yeah. that's Charlie Hunnam until you hear his voice. And you're like, yeah, yeah. it's the <laughs> Sam Crow guy. Yeah, it's Sons of Anarchy. But um, yes, I love how you can get like Julianne Moore to show up. And she's only around maybe 10 minutes max of screen time. Like if you actually time it. Yeah. But yeah. just her presence is so strong. And she would show up because it's Corona, of course you will. And I love it. It just also shows at that stage in his career, he can get people like that. Michael Caine to, you know, take a chance on this. I guess Clive Owen even took a pass at the script, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it had like five credited writers. I don't know, whatever they did with the writing, though, was brilliant. I confess, I've never read the book. I don't know if you have, but yeah, have I. so yeah, I no. know that some things were changed. I guess yeah. in the book, the fertility issues were the men's and they changed it to the women uh, in mm. the film. But anyway, he, he made some changes. And um, I also think, oh, the fate of Clive Owen's character uh, is different mm-hmm. in the book, things like that. But I think all the changes they made just serves the story super well for the film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, this is one of those films where you can, some of these sequences are so memorable. Um, It just, even like just starting solely, and I'm not even going with a one long shot yet. I'm just not even there yet. But it's like which the, one too, but I think I know exactly. which one you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah yes, yes. The iconic one. Yeah. <laughs> the one that you made a documentary on. Yeah. Um, that car ambush. Oh my God. I oh was my, like, I jumped. I feel, yes. Just like at the yes. beginning. Exactly. And like, where did that I, happen? I feel, exactly. And, and I just feel it's fascinating that. In a movie, I can feel claustrophobic. I feel like I'm inside that vehicle. I have no idea what's going on. And before I know it, I'm seeing somebody die in lifetime, in real time. Yeah. And it's just... Devastating. Yeah. It is. It is. I think that that even though the intro sequence should have already told me that, mm-hmm. it's this car ambush that tells me nobody's safe in here. No. <laughs> Do not like, trust anybody. Anyone. This is not a formulaic story. No. <laughs> Anything can happen to anybody. Yeah, it's not like, you know, a TV series where you're like, oh, no matter what happens, they're not going to yeah. kill off Columbo. I, mm-hmm. Columbo's on my brain because I've been watching it and I'm obsessed. But yeah, we know he's <laughs> going to be fine, that kind of yeah. thing. But no. Children of Men, I mean, everyone is at risk. 
Yes, and, and those massively long sequences. My goodness. Yes. I can't even imagine the amount of work that went into those long takes. Sometimes the takes are deceptive and there's some like trickery, but mm-hmm. a lot of times there's the one, the six and a half minute, I think is the one yeah. you were going for. Yeah. With the, yes. Yeah. The battle with, um, the army versus the uh, terrorist group and like mm-hmm. Clive Owen and uh, the young woman and the baby are just trying to get the hell out of there. It's harrowing. And mm-hmm. I love the the story that uh, my friend Blake told me about, which is, um, you know, when the blood or the squib got on the lens, yeah, own wanted to stop filming and yelled cut or something and they didn't <laughs> hear it. Or they just kept going and it's like, you're crazy. And he was because that really makes the scene. I love a good, uh, like a lens flare or something that lets you know when it works like that. And it, yeah. it's just masterful. Yeah. yeah, it just further immerses you. You're yeah. already in suspense and you're, you're, you're yes. already yeah. filled with the, with the anxiety. And just to see that in front of your face and yep. you're literally looking at those blood drops. You're yes. like, whoa. <laughs> just further yeah. immerses you and yeah. I, I also love how Cuaron particularly in this movie he kind of bends and 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 works uh reworks or rewires the 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 disaster genre um by Ooh. by involving so many different we we, we already see some of the uh, disaster conventions in this movie but yeah but. he bends it certainly with our protagonist yeah. <laughs> uh, it certainly does that and then yeah just making it a film about a sociopolitical narrative and unfortunately could not be more relatable now mm-hmm. i was at another podcast uh we were also talking about children of men <laughs> and <laughs> they, they 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 brought up a point of saying well if humanity is literally about to become extinct because we're not reproducing we're we're, we're sterile we can't reproduce why do we still continue to have people in cages why we're still continue to have all these impose all these social like just injustices and everything continues to go on we're human beings I guess that's yeah and and I just got it got me thinking and I was like wow I actually never thought about it until somebody brought it up and I was like I should never thought about that (laughs) until now the film raises so many questions and it also plays with um, like religion and the mm-hmm. the myth of you know the virgin. I mean, she makes a joke that she's a virgin, the pregnant yeah. woman, yeah. Um, and there's a little bit of that's in a barn when he finds out she's pregnant. I mean, mm-hmm. I only had a year and a half of Catholic school, and I'm not religious, but I remember all of the iconography stuff from uh, from Catholicism, and it's there. And I think. You also see it in all three of these uh, filmmakers, especially Del Toro, who likes yeah. to play with iconography, but like me and is not religious now. And I saw this a lot in Children of Men. There's a lot going on with um, sociology, philosophy, religion. Right. You can kind of come to this movie at whatever level you'd like. Like if you are religious, you're going to see something that way. If you're more philosophical. And I think that is also very special like he didn't just make one thing he's kind of putting it all together all of his influences and his questions and 
That's why, I mean, it is very topical and timely today, but yeah, that's why we can't stop talking about this movie, I guess. And it's all over the podcast waves. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and it'll continue Trendy. to be for the next, <laughs> yeah, yeah. for the next year, next few years. Cause yeah. Can you imagine the think pieces film. in 2027, like, you know, <laughs> like the day it was in November, I think when it opens or something like on yeah. that day, that's going to be, yeah. If Twitter is still around, that's going to be all over the place. The takes, oh, yeah. the takes Rosa, they'll be crazy. Yes. Yeah, very, so. very. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not putting any, any speculations out there or anything, but the pandemic has certainly, I mean, yeah. there's been some scientific research and so on and so forth that the, this virus has certainly changed or, or have some impact on DNA. And there's a good probability that some people could not and no, no longer reproduce because of the, yeah. if you were infected by this virus. COVID, so yep. um, maybe he was predicting something. <laughs> yes, he was. And the they lost their baby because of the flu pandemic of, I think mm-hmm. they said, 08. And it was like, wow, like, yeah, yeah. it is topical. Holy cow. Yep, yep, yep. Yes. Absolutely. You know, are there any other things you want to point out about uh, these two films before we move on? Before we move on. I know, I know there's a lot of films to, to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> we can be here for hours. I know. Um, uh, no, I think. I mean, we can see. always circle back. We think of something yeah. later, I suppose. Yes. All right. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Well, while we focused on two of Coron's forays into science fiction and fantasy, and honestly almost tackled another with gravity, the filmmaker who most would immediately link to the genre is our next one, Guillermo del Toro, whose imaginative, jaw-dropping, fairy tale-influenced works of horror and fantasy are filled with the affection he has for classic movies and film history and monsters. After getting his start studying special effects and makeup under the tutelage of Dick Smith, Del Toro dove into filmmaking early with his first film, Kronos, and later Hollywood titles like Mimic and Hellboy in the late 90s and early aughts, before he returned to his roots and made the two groundbreaking movies, The Devil's Backbone, which is the first one I ever saw, and Pan's Mm -hmm. Labyrinth which are both set in Spain under the authoritarian Spanish Civil War rule of Francisco Franco and were inspired by the Spanish classic, The Spirit of the Beehive. Del Toro, it should be said, is the son of Spanish parents, but was born and raised in Mexico, a cinephile who loves taking risks. Before we discuss his films, Crimson Peak and The Shape of Water, I would love to hear your thoughts on Guillermo del Toro. Oh my God, Guillermo del Toro. (laughs) He is such, uh, I've always said if if I've ever uh, had the opportunity to meet anyone or interview anyone, it would be Guillermo del Toro. He is one of those filmmakers who I love, I love to, to, get lost in his brain and his imagination and his vision it's just we watched a um i'm pretty sure it's on youtube there's a there's a little tour on um his he has like a a house it's called bleak house oh Um, the rain room is that the one 
don't know. It might be. (laughs) Yeah. And and he has literally like a two floor house and it's full of books and a lot of these like monster, like just mechanical artifacts. He has monsters. He has uh, objects from his film sets and you just walk in there and I mean, I've never been there, but, but at least on the yeah. uh, on the video, it's like a good 10 minute video, 20, 15 minutes. Oh video. And he gives you a tour on his house. He's like, this is my man cave. Every time I need to focus every any time I would need to just concentrate or come up with any ideas. Um, he has a whole lot of books um, that he's. According to him, he's read all of them, which I do not doubt. The man is a genius. He's an intellectual. He really is. Yes. yes. He's, he's the professor of the group. For yes. Sure. Yeah. Yes. And on the second floor, he has like his own little theater with uh, photographs, like of, of people that inspired him. You have like Alfred Hitchcock. And it's just, man, it's just mind boggling. And this is just his man cave. I can't even imagine what goes on inside his brain. Um but yeah. yes, Guillermo del Toro is certainly, he's the most well-known out of the three. He's the one that I've known the most and heard about uh, growing up. And I think the first movie I saw of his was actually the first one he did, which is Cronos. Um, Cronos is certainly uh, one of my favorite <laughs> Guillermo del Toro films because just of how and he was able to... In, be very nuanced and, and bold at the same time in terms of telling like a horror monster story yet incorporating all these religious symbolisms into it mm-hmm. particularly in a country that tends to be very religious like Mexico yeah. the fact that he was to he went ahead and did this was quite quite extraordinary um but I mean, I, I think Guillermo del Toro is just fascinating. <laughs> just just he as a filmmaker is. and another another of those directors who's come and you he has he's one of the very few who has a unique stamp. You know when you're watching a Guillermo del Toro film. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he's more of a visual storyteller. I, I like to describe his films just more of a he he really likes to satisfy your visual appetite per se because he, he's very much into the visuals and you automatically know when you're watching one of his films mm-hmm. yeah you really do yeah no what i was thinking with the rain i had heard that he has a room mm-hmm. in his house where it rains all the time because oh. he'd always imagined like that would be amazing and he said yeah you know what's the point of turning 40 and having some money to play with if you don't fulfill those fantasies and I'm like oh my gosh a rain room would be incredible he's just such a cool place to like you know zen out or whatever I can't imagine yeah Yeah. and I've heard about the memorabilia he's also supposed to be just so approachable and personable Mm -hmm. he did my friend's podcast recently Uh, my friend Blake Howard had a podcast on heat called one heat minute and Del Toro Uh loves that movie and uh, was interested was a fan of the podcast and I think it was after Michael Mann did it then he was you know like and so Blake got him on and they just talked for the hour and I'm like oh my goodness I can't even imagine I would have I don't know if I could have formed a sentence. I would have just wanted him to talk about movies. And he seems like the coolest film professor that you could ever have, basically. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I agree. I probably 
Yeah, I would be. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. be able to say anything. <laughs> and by all accounts, supposed to be like the nicest guy, which is really cool to hear. Yes. Yeah. 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 He's he he does come across as very humbled and very just approachable and just yeah. like teddy bear. You just want to hug him. Yes. <laughs> very yes. true. Well, starting things off with Del Toro, we have the first film in the group that I hadn't seen. So. Bravo, Rosa. I'm so glad you chose it. I actually had missed this one. We're talking about 2015's gothic romance, the Hitchcockian, like, Rebecca-styled haunted house feature Crimson Peak with Mia Bushakovska, Tom Hiddleston, Jessica Chastain, and Charlie Hunnam, which set in Victorian-era England centers on a feminist aspiring author who, upon marrying the handsome yet mysterious Tom Hiddleston, moves to his remote Gothic mansion where things go bump in the night, including his possessive, overly attentive older sister, played by Jessica Chastain. Lush and thrilling, this film makes for one perfect companion piece to his next movie, the one I chose of the group, The Shape of Water, with Sally Hawkins, Richard Jenkins, Doug Jones, Octavia Spencer, Michael Shannon, and Michael Stuhlbarg, which won Best Picture and Best Director in 2018. The film, set in Baltimore in 1962 at the height of the Cold War, tells the story of a mute cleaner at a government defense facility who falls in love with a captured half-man, half-amphibian that was taken out of the waters of South America, where it was worshipped like a god. And I still can't believe this one best picture with that premise. It's amazing. It's a sweet, surprisingly touching movie that uses a cool green and blue color palette, very Kieślowski style, like the red, white, and blue trilogy. And it brings us right into the heart of this unusual romance. More so than Quarones, these films go very well together. So I would love to hear your impressions of Del Toro's romantic side in these inventive works. Yes. Um, it's funny because I selected Crimson Speak because I hadn't seen it either. Are you serious? Oh my God, <laughs> yeah. that's so perfect. Yes, yes it, it was one of my, my blind spots of his filmography. I'm like, oh, you know we didn't what? plan this, everybody. That's no, amazing. we didn't. No, that's great. <laughs> yeah, so um, and I think I was reading, or, or it was either in a tweet or I was uh, reading an article. I don't remember. I have the the Dory syndrome very 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 severely. Um, so, oh, no. <laughs> so I think I was reading somewhere where he said or he confirmed that Crimson Crimson's Peak was the film that was very much detail oriented. That he was very careful in the details. So I'm like, okay, I have not seen this film. I'm gonna select it because now I have to watch it. And wow. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I was like, "Whoa!" It's twisted, isn't it? Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I can't one, believe yeah. how much I liked it. It's gorgeous. Oh my goodness! Yes, it's so yes. romantic and weird, and like a kinky gothic. Like you think Rebecca is kinky, everybody. Like watch this movie. I mean, it's rated R, but it is. Mm -hmm there's a lot going on. I mean, not looking at Hiddleston the same way or Jessica Chastain, my goodness. Yes. How yeah. much fun did Jessica Chastain look like she was having too? Like, yes. you know, being the spoiler alert guys, incestuous uh, sister who has the hots for her brother and is involved with them. And 
it's like all of a sudden it's like the VC Andrews territory. Like, whoa, where are we now? It's yeah, there's a lot yes. going on. Yes, yes, yes. It, it, the costumes were gorgeous, and and the oh production design, everything. I mean, it's oh my gosh, Victorian era. <laughs> what yeah. else can we expect? But you do add that little twist of, of Guillermo del Toro in it, particularly with the ghosts um, mm-hmm. and, and just the horror elements. And, and something I very much love and admire of, of del Toro is how he very much challenges the horror conventions, the already established ones, particularly with the monsters, yeah. in this case with the ghosts. Um, he always manages every film he does to prove to the audience that these monsters aren't necessarily the bad ones in the story that the human beings are perhaps the most monstrous people out there (laughs) i know and what i love is in um i mean that takes us also to shape of water which we'll get into but yeah i love how in that one a guy who if it had been shot in that whole era like 50s and 60s you would Mm -hmm. think the crusading man who works for the defense facility and is trying to protect us would be the hero and it's like no that's the real monster everybody same with this one it's yeah not what you expect there's there's always something under the under the you know facade of perfection and he doesn't believe in that he loves his outsiders it's just so cool he's also kind of the I mean all of them have very strong female characters in all the films but He's like the feminist of the group, pretty much. I mean, yes, yes, yes. Uh, of absolutely. the group, he is the one that is staunchly makes sure. I mean, in this movie, um, Bushakovska, I think I, I looked it up. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. If I'm not, I apologize. Um, plays like uh, an aspiring author, like a Mary Shelley wannabe, and she's kind of like joe from little women you know it's not going to yeah. take no for for an answer i just yes. love that i love that um del toro and his co-writer who i think was uh, i can't remember who it was on this one but i love that they they thought of that and made it so that she's our heroine and the one who gets kind of doubted or you know like oh you're crazy that's not happening you know he takes these feminist stances and runs with it i love that about del toro yeah yes i I had not thought about it until now that you mentioned i'm like yeah i don't know i don't know like yeah you're absolutely right i hadn't thought about it until now that you mentioned it and yes I, i very much love that about about these films and how it's just the story in general because I, I am, I guess, a stereotypical woman. I'm, I'm very big on romance. I like. Oh, romance I love it too. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I really liked the, the one how it developed here. I was also thinking of Rebecca when, <laughs> when everything yeah. was unfolding. I was like, okay, well, the Jessica Chastain character looks a little weird, very suspicious, but <laughs> very whoa, Mrs. Danvers. We'll see yeah. what happens. Yes, yeah. and. This film, even though I just watched it today, is some of those some of those shots and, and and frames have stayed with me, particularly the ones that deal with the snow and 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 the blood. I don't know if it was blood or it was something else, or they were assuming it was something else, and in reality, it was all blood. Mm-hmm. But to have that mixture, he he tends to do that a lot. He tends to to particularly when you have pale surface colors, either whites or your faces or just um, very light colored, 
he's very much into either um, highlighting that with blood. We, we mm -hmm. see that a lot in Kronos. We slightly see it in Shape of Water. Um, we see it here, of course, with the snow and the blood. And yes. even like the, the, the dresses, white dress, all filled with blood. Um, it, it's just how he plays around with those colors and, and how he, and even towards the end when, when he has those, a lot of greens as well in, in, in this movie. Yeah, and then you just see the like the walls filled with blood. <laughs> I know he, yeah, he kind of yeah. like takes a a color or a couple colors, and like those are yeah. his colors for the film. Of course, you know, thinking about it, uh, Quaron loves uh, green as well. But yeah, no, this all the red and the richness, also just sort of the jewel yes. tones. Like there's a really beautiful shade of blue, especially in the costumes that's used in this as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's just a knockout yeah. film to look at. The acting is just first rate. I loved everybody in it. I think uh, Chastain is definitely having the most fun of everyone, but you know, it was, it's cool and I, I think it's very surprising too the the Charlie Hunnam character is this doctor who loves to read Sherlock Holmes books and you know wants to get to the bottom of it because he's in love with his friend who married Hiddleston and yeah. I also love the whole idea of again it goes back to the feminism they all kind of have their little obsessions I mean Quaron loves motherhood and that that kind of goes throughout mm -hmm. his movies. But yeah, there's something about the pursuit of independence or trying to make your own way and the pluckiness of a del Toro heroine. He, you know, loves that. And I think it works so well in this that the men that are um, into her, you know, how they react to her work is such a big part of the attraction. And um, that's so true because some men are, you know, they'll humor you or, yeah. or they're not really into your work. And so I thought that was very, very apt. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, it, it goes without saying that it, it cannot be a Guillermo del Toro film without bugs or without his, his no. little bugs or mechanical <laughs> objects that he uses, yes. which are all over here. And yeah. I, I very much like what it was like, yep. This is all they thought of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the ghosts right away, like the there's you know monstrous ghosts and things, and it's like yeah, this is this is the haunted yeah. house. The stuff that was my first exposure to him was some of the you know the Devil's Backbone and Pan's yeah. Labyrinth. This is very much a piece of that, but it also is its own unique thing. It's like no, he went Victorian all of a sudden. Yeah. I think yes. it's really cool when he. Um, likes to jump into other times and settings and things like that. He's, I think the most adventurous in that regard. Yeah. 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 I agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. And then um, the shape of water, I kind of pushed that one on you. I loved it because uh, I am disabled. So I really responded to the fact that we have a disabled heroine Um played by Sally Hawkins. She doesn't speak. She's mute. And it's a movie about outsiders or the disenfranchised and how they mm -hmm. um, come together and conquer the evil. In this case, you know, the gray man, or man in the gray flannel suit, essentially, like from that whole era. And I think it's very subversive and very smart. So yes. couldn't wait to dig into that one with you, too. 
Yes. Um, I, I was happy that you selected it. I, I think I'd only seen it once. I had to rewatch it for, for this yeah. episode. Um, yeah. And after rewatching it, yes, it's a really well done film. Another, mm-hmm. again, he's a visual storyteller. And, and, and if he does not capture you with his narrative, mm-hmm. he's going to capture you with the visuals that he puts on display. So yeah. th- this movie, the color palette is just so exquisite soothing it is really it's like yeah you can just yes i mean there's that opening thing but even Mm -hmm. no even when we're just with her going about her day the way the camera Mm -hmm. is kind of flowing it's almost like a corone camera basically like you're just kind of drifting through like water and it's magical it (gasps) i know it's controversial to say because i know he was like accused of taking something and i i don't see it like that just it does feel like it kind of could go with Amelie or movies like that. Mm. Um, yeah. And I know people were accusing him of taking from Junet's work and I don't see it like that. I see maybe they were inspired by the same thing. That's mm. a different movie or, um, you know, those old creature features like creature, the black lagoon, but I love that he, he took that and then he took like, a woman you might get in a Douglas Sirk movie and put them together and it's his own thing. Yeah. Made it work. Yeah. <laughs> he made it work. Who would have thought? Um, like, like you just, like I just with the synopsis, I don't I have no idea how this won the Academy Award. <laughs> I know it really, it, it's insane to me. I actually looked up what was, there was a lot of good movies that year. I mean, yeah. you know, I think some of them might've split the vote and also it's just a beautiful film, but but it is amazing. Like if I tell this plot to just someone off the street and be like, mm-hmm. that one best picture will be, no, it didn't. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and People took a chance that year. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, aside from, from the gorgeous visuals, I think the acting is, is very much superb. I mean, Sally Hawkins, come on. Yeah. She's like happy go lucky. And yeah. You know, those movies back then yeah yeah and she was in she's just great yeah Spencer too I -hmm. love her Michael Shannon is like so evil and I I love Michael Shannon in this movie (laughs) you just you hate him and it's it's hard to watch because you know in real life you're like oh he's such a badass and he's so cool because he you know tells it like it is with trump and everything and and then you see him in this movie and you're like go to hell michael shannon you're evil yes <laughs> but he's very, literally very rotting yes <laughs> i know michael stuhlbarg is so good and yes. it's interesting too because in this era he's playing like um again with the spoilers i apologize but he is playing a guy who works at this government facility who's a double you know has a second life and to mother russia and it's during the cold war and we're not supposed to traditionally sympathize with that type of person this conflicted man and you know he's been put into a bad situation and it's yeah it's a daring movie there's a lot to this one yeah yeah yeah, absolutely and Richard he, Jenkins, he too. Yes! I was about to mention him. And, and, and I was about I to mention see, him. I, and I saw your eyes when I was talking about the outs. I'm like, oh, I bet she's going to go there next. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess Richard Jenkins, he, he was extraordinary in this film. And, and to have him, like, 
you made him a gay man in this era and and, yes. and just to see um how how he navigates through that and just the bit the bits and pieces and, and the homages uh that he pays like to all hollywood and and with with the with the, the Charlie temple yes <laughs> i love that when over there like, on oh. the couch dancing together as yes they, it's, it's just the most adorable thing you've ever seen yeah yes absolutely love that part i i just loved it and yeah, it's just a, a great film, a film that, like you said, on, on script, this should not work, um, but he makes it work. He, he, he certainly knows what, what he's doing. And I mean, the amphibian, come on, that design. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was like, wow. Insane. Yeah. 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 He didn't make him super cute. You know, I think yeah. most Hollywood, you know, if it had been in anyone else's hands, they would have made amphibian guy you know, a little more like a, I don't know, cover of a romance novel guy or something right. like, yeah, like Joe Manginello or, you know, you're going to get the, the rock or something like this as, as an amphibian man, but this is an amphibian man people. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yes, he is. And another collaboration he's had <laughs> with Doug Jones for, for quite some time now for years yeah. and, and he certainly knows it. I, I mean it, it's it's certainly you you don't not once I mean I didn't think that there was actually a man inside a suit I actually believed there was an amphibian uh, <laughs> yeah. animal and I was like wow and and for him just the movement guy? yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just fascinating that they, they were able to pull this off I know. And the music is wonderful. Alexander Desplat. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, I love Desplat. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yes. Some of my favorite scores have been done by him. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, gorgeous. Mm -hmm. It's magical. Yeah. Are there any other things you wanted to discuss about these films or Del Toro? Or I think we covered them pretty Del well. Del Toro. Oh, my God. <laughs> we can just talk about him forever. I, I, I just know. love how... Is it, it's very much worth mentioning that all of this and his obsession and fascination with monsters in the horror genre has a lot to do with with his experience and his upbringing. And I think he he did mention it when he won. It was either best director, mm -hmm. which I think it was that one, and he said that his monsters have always been there with him. They've always been there yeah. with him, and the people that were the most monstrous behavior-wise with him were the humans, and we see that in all of his films. Yes, you <laughs> we, do. We see it in the films, so it, it, it's it's very again important to. I think that's why I think it's very important to have such diverse diversity in terms of storytellers and directors and, and so on and so forth because we all bring different um, so ideas true. and perspectives to the table. Yeah, very true. Well, whereas Del Toro's passion and knowledge of film greatly influences his work, our third amigo and a former radio DJ fond of crafting playlists that told a story believes that music is his greatest inspiration. This, of course, is wonderfully philosophical Alejandro Gonzalez Inuratu 
who I would call the natural sociologist of the three. While he did flirt with postmodernism and magical realism in the feature-length jazz riff Birdman, Inuratu, in my eyes, is still someone whose first films about class and country and culture and circumstance with Amoris Paris and 21 Grams and Babel, the death trilogy, co-written with Guillermo Arriaga, hit me the hardest. And they're just wonderful documents firmly grounded in realism in a very you are here almost claustrophobically at times sense of being in the moment you are with these characters in these situations people that you would probably never meet in a million years suddenly are right there with you and you're trying to solve this problem with them and i think that is just amazing. I can't wait to discuss his first two films with you in a moment, but I would like to know how you see Inuratu. And I know you mentioned he is your favorite and what compels you the most here with his work. Yes. Um, I, I, he's my favorite because for the exact same reason that a lot of people don't like him. <laughs> oh, really? um, not, not to go against the the, the, the crowd or, or, or the herd or anything like that, but uh, he's been um, named or accused or labeled as being very presumptuous and very uh, egotistical and just full of himself uh, yeah. for, for, for what he does. And I mean, I, I can see it. I, I understand where they're coming from, but I think that's what interests me more about him. Mm -hmm. uh, that his confidence and, and the fact that out of the three, even though I have not seen the first film by Cuaron, the fact that this is, that Amores Perros is his directorial debut, it's still for me hard to believe that it, that is yes. his first film. I, was I like, know. What? You dive into your directorial debut with the nonlinear narrative and, and, and telling and shining a light on a sociopolitical state of your country. And it's excellent. It still holds up. It, it it's it, just last year, it was, I think, what, the 20th year anniversary of it. And it still holds up. And, and yeah. I just love that he, like you said, he's very much of the socialist out of the three. Mm -hmm. And I, I love how he explores that. He, I, I learned a very valuable lesson oh, yeah. <laughs> while taking one of my film classes. Um, I was taking a film course where we were focusing on these three directors. So we spent two weeks with Guaron, two weeks with Del Toro, and only one week with Iñárritu, because of course he has the shortest uh, filmography out of the three. And for him, in one week, I had to watch um, four, four of his films, The First Three and Beautiful. And so then, as a great procrastinator that I am, I left it all to the, to the last day, you know, because um, mm -hmm. I'm busy too. But you are busy. Yes. <laughs> you can't watch uh, movies but, in traffic. <laughs> I, exactly. Yeah. Um, but I admit, I, I can procrastinate a little bit here and there. And I learned a very valuable lesson that day. You cannot watch more than one Cuaron film in a 24-hour period if you want to keep your sanity. Oh, you mean Inuratu? Yes. 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 You cannot watch. I watched three of them in 24 hours, and that was a complete mess. <laughs> oh, my gosh. The emotional, the amount yes. of stress. Wow, Rosa. <laughs> Yes, that yes. was a very hard learned lesson. And 
I think that 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 should says something about the type of stories that he tells. Very realistic. Yeah. Yeah. And he's just, I think if there's any visual representation of six degrees of separation, (laughs) it would be this. It would be his filmography because especially the first three ones. Uh, we, we, just, we start with Amores Perros, which is very much local. You, you, you just stay in the, mm-hmm. uh, the capital city of Mexico. And then with 21 Grams, he's a Mexican director. So we go foreign in the mm-hmm. United States. And then, of course, he's going to end the trilogy on a global international scale with Pavel. So d- just to see that, if he does not do you with his films he will leave you contemplating and he will yeah you think and even second guess or even have you considering <laughs> uh to think twice about the next decisions you make in the next few either days or hours because you have no idea who they can affect yeah you don't know what's coming exactly yeah Yep. No, it it's eerie. Yeah, his yeah. films. Exactly. There's so much to think about. And there's also, it's impossible to walk out of one and not have that just stay with you and haunt yeah. you for at least a week. I mean, I mm-hmm. hadn't seen 21 Grams or Morris Peros in forever until oh. like I had the excuse to rewatch them. And all yeah. of a sudden, starting it, at first, I'm like, oh, you know, I don't remember much. And then you get it. You're like, yes, I do. I remember um, some really vivid things and some completely shocking moments. And yeah, you know, and you, you realize, boy, this has stayed with me since I saw it for the first time. Like I saw Morris Peros in 2001. I remember because it was when I moved down here. Um, I'm from Minneapolis originally and I moved to mm-hmm the Phoenix area and was finally really excited because video stores had more international movies and just a greater selection. And so um, I was so excited that the video store right by my house happened to have this. Like I've been wanting to see that. And I went home and I watched it and it was like late at night, not the greatest movie to watch before bed. If you're a dog person, my goodness. But yeah, all of that really still had stuck with me. It was, it's incredible. I can't yeah. believe that's his first movie. That's Gael Garcia Bernays' first movie. It's yes. Staggering. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And yeah, I I don't have dogs, but I, I do have kids, and I can tell you that every time I watch his film, mm-hmm. I always go and and hug my kids, and I'm yeah. like, because <laughs> you have no idea what can happen. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a dog at this moment, but still, it's just like, oh, it's yeah. just too much. Yes. Yeah. Well, looking past his most recent works in the 2010s, including Beautiful with Javier Bardem and Birdman with Michael Keaton and The Revenant with Leonardo DiCaprio, we're going back to the beginning for Inuratu, starting with his startlingly original first two features, Amores Peros from 2000 and 21 Grams from 2003. These are two films which deal with the impact that a car crash has on the life of at least a half a dozen characters. Six in the case of Peros and three primary players and a handful of secondary ones in 21 Grams. They're morality tales with biblical overtones and implications most explicitly in 21 Grams where the staunchly religious born-again Christian played by Benicio del Toro and his pastor played by Eddie Marsan specifically cite Jesus and his teachings. 
The movies raise questions about right and wrong, the haves versus the have-nots, fate, karma, predestination or coincidence, and routinely leave you with the lesson to be careful what you wish for because you just might get it in the worst way. Heavy, heartbreaking ensemble dramas with powerful performances. These films, just like Del Toro's, go perfectly well together. I think they also offer an interesting opportunity to compare and contrast not only the differences between the two films made in two different countries and languages, but also the way that Inuratu, working from dynamic scripts by Ariaga, employ almost French New Wave-like techniques in their nonlinear storytelling approaches for both good and bad. So what is your take on these movies, Rosa? Oh, man, so many. <laughs> I know. Where to start? Like, where to where start? Where to begin? <laughs> yeah, you're like, understatement of the year. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I love how he he utilizes the nonlinear storytelling. Yeah. To For both films, I think he uses them a bit differently, if that's even possible. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, there's no similarities except for for just the interconnectedness of all our characters being on screen. But for for Amores Perros, just to see it, to see how this car accident, which is how we start the film. Yes. We, we start the film with that car being chased. We see Gael Garcia Bernal panicking. We see an mm-hmm. injured dog in the back and he's worried it's dead or not. We have zero context <laughs> zero yeah, we, no we, we just go directly into the chaos yet he manages to just grab me and hook me and i just love that film for it because it, the fact that you can hook me to a story without knowing anything about it with, with, without knowing what's going to happen next it's just and for that to be your first film for come on <laughs> it's, it's just so accomplished just i yes. mean structurally and yes. uh in terms of technique and his mm-hmm. uh way with his actors i mean yes. i can't believe that is his first movie it's yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and the way he 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 uses the, the 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 storytelling narrative and that structure is very um, smart. I'm I'm sure it's not easy to do. No. <laughs> you can easily confuse or, or make people just lose lose people in your narrative without even, if, particularly on a non linear one. So so the fact that he was able to do this is very very impressive in my opinion but on top of that we are of course we we there's a lot of dogs involved and and amores perros (laughs) literally Mm -hmm. um i won't say the word but you know where i'm going if you translate it to english um and just to explore these three different dynamics we 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 see it with the first one is uh, susana and 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 um and the Gael Garcia Bernal character, and just to see that unfold and to see how he explores the variety of dynamics, uh, relationships, like sibling rivalry, and um, even relationships like sibling rivalry, we see it with this one, but we also see it in the El Chivo character as well. Yeah, the third story. Yes, and and just to see that going around is very impressive. And, And to also see, how he unfolds and talks about the sociopolitical narrative that's going on, how 
-hmm. in order for you, if you're a middle class person, the only way you can earn a good amount of money is by doing illegal activities or doing or or fighting your dogs or, or anything like that. And then we see it with the second story. We see how he even changes that. We, we see the chaos with, with the first story. A lot of handheld camera. see a lot of shaking going on. And then it gets much more steadier in the second story. It which does. Is a bit of a higher uh, economical class with, with the model and then the guy that. And yeah. I think he, I think Iñárritu makes a little cameo in the movie as well. Um, in, in the okay. second story. I might have missed that, but yeah, no. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. So it, it just comes back to what you were saying in terms of his te- technique and how he decides to use uh, a certain type of camera, holding your camera in the hand makes it more realistic, but it also gives you an idea of how chaotic that environment is. Whereas the second story, which is more of a higher class, much more steady, much more calm, much mm-hmm. more soothing. And then, yeah, to to end with the Chihuahua, I think that that was my favorite story out of the three. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, the the, the Chihuahua one, because Chihuahua is, of course, a, it's a retired veteran, and just to see how he gets hired to 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 murder people because that's what he's trained to do, kind of like Kofi. <laughs> You're both trained to murder. You're both trained yeah. to fight. And kill, and ju- just to see those parallels and that dynamic, and and just to to see it unfold. But then you also have your your father daughter relationship dynamic that he's also trying to work on, and and just to see how country treats its veterans. Again, it's very complex. That that's another mm-hmm. thing about this film. All these characters are so complex. None of them are white or black. They're all different shades of gray. Mm-hmm. which makes it even far more fascinating for me, particularly for it to be a directorial debut. Yeah, 100%. He respects the intelligence of the audience, so he doesn't want to spoon feed us. And absolutely what you were pointing out, like the graininess and the handheld quality of the first story. I mean, these are characters who have to make up their mind and have to make decisions extremely quickly. Their heads are always on a swivel and they don't know where violence might come from, especially in the household that Gael Garcia Bernay lives in. I mean, some of that is his own uh, doing. He falls in love with his brother's wife. So, uh, you know, that's going to be a scuffle that's waiting to happen. But also with the, the dog fighting that goes on there. Uh, The second one is more static, more classically like a Hollywood movie. Uh, There's dollies and steady cams, and it's just very smooth and a little, it's a quieter um, Mm -hmm. section of the film as well, except later on as uh, stresses start to mount when uh, the dog gets trapped on the floor and she's having problems after she was involved in the accident with her leg um, and starts losing her um, temper and they you know, butt heads a little bit, and then their household gets a little bit crazier, and some of the scenes, uh, the takes start to get shorter. I thought that was smart, and the wide open spaces of the third one, um, you know, except inside, and when we're inside in the third one, uh, because we're with somebody who is extremely disenfranchised, and uh, basically almost homeless, living in, like, huts, essentially, and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, when we're indoors, we feel very, very trapped. 
And then when he's out walking around with his dogs and sort of, you know, wandering the streets, he seems very powerful and like he can do anything almost like a, um, like an all powerful character. Yeah. It's interesting. I actually, I am the weirdo. I think um, I prefer them in the order that they play out in the film. Uh, the mm -hmm. first one I found the most compelling second one, second most and the third just maybe a, a hair less compelling than the third or the second part. But I love how we go from extreme poverty to these people who, you know, can buy and sell anyone essentially like the, these high class problems of their own making. And in the first one, you have people that are like literally fighting to buy diapers and formula, yes. um, fighting their dogs and risking their lives. And it's just kind of a nice contrast with, oh, your first world problems, like, oh, I had to leave my wife and my daughters to be with my mistress. And oops, she got hurt on the first day. And now for better or worse happened very quickly. Um, I find that contrast to be really jarring and really smart. It shows they're yeah. less equipped to deal with the problems of the world almost than the, the poor people who, you know, they're used to life you know, not working out or things not going their way and knowing, mm -hmm. hey, I have a plan now, but in five minutes, if it doesn't go, I'm gonna have to make up a different plan. And okay. yeah, they're a little more adept at handling that. And so I mm -hmm. love that contrast. Um, I think it's a very special film. I enjoy what he was doing subtly with the nonlinear storytelling in this. I think 21 Grams gets a little too disjointed in yes. uh, in the jumpiness like it was losing me a little bit he tried to do kind of a similar technique to what we saw in traffic the Soderbergh movie where Soderbergh mm. used colors to like okay this is the um you know this one is more in blue and this is the yellows of uh, I can't remember if yellow was Mexico or the LA story like each place had a different color story and mm -hmm. to kind of like weave us in. And he was using kind of bleached out colors for the different people or different techniques. That was helpful, but it's still, I think, a little too chaotic in that one. I think they went too far, but it's still an extremely worthwhile film. Cast is incredible, just like the first one. I mean, Gael Garcia Bernay in Amores Peros, you watch that. And just like with Inuratu, you're like, this is their first film. Yeah. That was my mind. Yeah. 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 He's so magnetic. He really <laughs> and, is. Yeah. You, you, your attention just goes to him. And, and yeah. he has like some like superstar written all over his face. And I mean, yeah. the man is good looking. You can't deny that. Yeah. <laughs> but he has that charisma kind of like um, yes. Edward Norton yes. in Primal Fear or like Angelina Jolie and Girl Interrupted, where you're like, who is mm -hmm. that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You take notice. Yes, yes. you notice <laughs> who he is. Absolutely. And yes, I, and what, what you were saying, the, the, the different classes between the, the three stories is very much uh, something very interesting to look at. And the fact that we saw that car accident four times yes, <laughs> from different, different angles. Yeah. And I was like, wow. This is something that, by logic, is supposed to annoy me because I've just seen this scene. I already watched it. <laughs> and then I watched it again and again mm -hmm. and then again. But it was very smart, smartly done when you're doing it from different perspectives because 
how I perceive a car accident can be completely different from how other persons perceived Mm -hmm. it and how it affects people. And within those two stories, we see how Gael Garcia Bernal is the one responsible for it and how the second story gets directly affected by it. And I also noticed, like, even the dogs. <laughs> the dogs in the second story is more fanciful, more and more, like, cute You're looking. so right. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God, of course it would be. Yes. <laughs> it's all wide and puffy. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but... Man, it, it, it's certainly one of those movies. And, and I haven't even talked about the score. That score is just fascinating. It's I just, love the score. Yeah. I love the score. I, I just love it. And knowing that, of course, Iñárritu is going to have a lot of hands-on in terms of the score and the soundtrack that gets involved. Because he's, like you just said, he's a big music guy. Yeah. Um, he, he's very big on the music. And he says, yeah, he said in an interview that his first passion, his passion is music. I was like, wow, <laughs> I would like to see what you do with music if this is what you do with film. I know. Yeah, I was trying to figure that out if he would played music or if it was just yeah. a passion of his. But yeah, yeah, I was very interested in that. Yeah. yeah. And then 21 Grams, what was your yeah. uh, relationship to that one? How do you feel? That it? one I had not seen until oh, okay. I did for this episode. Um, okay, cool. That was the one I, I was supposed to watch it for class. I had to skip it because I could only watch three films and yeah. I almost died. Um, <laughs> yeah. But this movie, yeah, it, it, it was very different, different in terms of, of how they decided to tell the story. Again, it is non-linear storytelling, but this one jumps like so from present to the past and then at some point i have no idea where i'm at and it doesn't have that car accident like it does at tamores perro so i'm yes. not certainly sure where i'm going with 21 grams yeah it's off-screen car accident essentially yes it, yes it you don't see anything. the stories no it unites yeah. them um but yeah so it's kind of a yes, similar yes. motif but handled differently differently correct yeah. and I, I was i think i was yeah, I was confused for the first few minutes. Um, I have no idea what was going on. Uh, yeah. I was like, okay. And then I start seeing how each one is involved with the other and how they're interconnected. And and to see the Benicio del Toro character, I was like, okay, I think I know where this is going. And I think mm-hmm. it's halfway where I'm like, okay, I got it now. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, it's one of those films. Yeah. Yes, yes. It's one of those films I think that I'm going to probably need to give it another watch. <laughs> Not yeah. anytime soon. But <laughs> just I don't know see. if it fully served the story to do it like that either. I think, yeah. I mean, it's an excellent movie, but I think it almost drove you a little, like you're not supposed to be lost to the point of you're not completely lost or immersed in the story. Like you shouldn't right. be thinking of the mechanics of the storytelling, I guess, is my mm-hmm. thing. I mean, even though those performances and the issues that they're raising, like my joke, um, I made a joke on Twitter about um, watching exactly what you said of having to watch these back to back. I watched, you know, Morris Peros and 21 Grams in the same week. And I'm like, what the hell happened to Guillermo Arriaga? Because the screenwriter like loves to just devastate you. And uh, I said, dude needs a hug. It was my thing and then I got followed by Guillermo Arriaga which is hilarious um so he obviously has a good sense of humor about the fact that he likes to depress you and he's good at writing these just heartbreaking heart-wrenching stuff and he is because um I think 
I'm weird. I think the Inuratu movies made with Ariaga are my favorite ones. But um, yeah, my goodness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these movies just are devastating. And uh, yeah, so smart. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I naturally gravitate toward complex characters, characters who are so conflicted, who are not one dimensional. And I think I'm safe to say that the, the Guillermo Arriaga written characters are certainly that. Mm -hmm. um, because, yeah, the, the later films that he does, I'm not entirely sure. Arriaga, did he write the first three films or he also did Beautiful? Ooh, there's a question. Uh, I think, uh, let me look that up. I think it was just Babel and then Beautiful. Yeah, because I the think writer. Inuratu barred him from the set of uh, Babel. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um. So. so yes, yes. Those are the. I, I think I'm right there with you. Those are perhaps my favorite ones, which is <laughs> probably why I chose them. <laughs> hey. No. I'm glad. <laughs> yes. Uh, because yeah, I, I've seen Beautiful and Birdman and The Revenant. Eh, they're they're no, more of a the visual. That's the one I've not seen. Is The Revenant. Which one? The Revenant. The Revenant. I, I just recently yet. watched it a few days ago for his episode because we had to cover it. Uh, my co-host selected that film. I'm like, oh, okay. are you sure we're doing this one? She's like, yeah, let's just watch it. I haven't seen it. I'm like, well, neither have I, so let's do it. Okay. And 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 and, and it was more of a visual uh, spectacle to me. It was more mm -hmm. of a visually appealing movie than it is about the characters it has. Although, I mean, DiCaprio does deserve the, the he certainly did deserve the oscar for that performance because mm -hmm. man the physicality of that performance just mind-boggling yeah um okay. i will but, check that out yeah 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 give it a shot but i think the characters in his first trilogy are the ones that has they definitely have stayed with me the most and to the point where they're 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 just well written and so complex. There's many different shades of, of gray that even though I know a person is doing something morally not right, mm -hmm. yet you still understand where they're coming from and the reasons why you don't want to justify their actions, but you understand them. Mm -hmm. And when you're on that level of conflict, <laughs> or like, oh my God, they're not, this is not right, but I understand why they're doing this. Mm -hmm. like, it just puts you in this very difficult position. And the fact that the, these films, particularly 21 Grams also, I wasn't sure at first why the movie was titled 21 Grams until the very yes. end. And then it explained <laughs> it. I was like, oh, are you selling me something here? Am I, you know, we're talking about drugs. Are, what are we weighing here? <laughs> I know. I think but, that's what some people thought going in, if I remember right, like it's going to be a drug movie. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was my initial thought. And, yeah. uh, and until the very end when it explains, I was like, okay. Yeah. Uh, I was like, wow. Something I didn't know, actually. It, Which is true. a poetic license, I guess. Um, I don't think it, it does weigh, or some of the things they say that weigh 21 grams do not. I remember that was a thing. And it was like, come mm -hmm. on, you guys, just let them be poetic yeah. here. Yeah. Yes. You don't have yes. to take everything that literally. We don't need 21 gram gate where we're going to investigate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like Titanic did Jack fit in that door. <laughs> yeah. Could Jack fit in the door? Was Kate Winslet <laughs> just doing that? Yeah. How selfish is she? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but 
You yeah. know what? Yeah, it, it was a movie that I did have some issues with the way it unfolded. But once I was able to understand it and I was able to get the hang of it, um, I was like, okay, I, I see where this is going. And I ended up liking it. Okay. Yeah, because, no, it I, is I guess a good because, film. I guess in a sense, because you know it's an Iñárritu film, you kind of do come into this film expecting something like this in a way. Yeah. Uh, so in, in that sense, I guess it's a bit forgivable for me. Uh, but yeah, I think not, it comes nowhere near close to Amores Perros. But mm-hmm. the themes it explores, you know, grief and again, family dynamics. He, he's very much a socialist person and these different yeah. relationships, guilt, conscious guilt, and, and just the way he just explores that it just gets into your head and mm-hmm. it's something very relatable to all of us either grief or guiltiness or anything like that and it's it's why it stays with you and either depresses you or just leaves you thinking because these topics are so what we it's our everyday lives what we, what we yeah, go through yeah. every day i know these are like um you know biblical overtones with uh yeah that just go you know, revenge, what can you forgive? Um, And then there's questions of, is any of this predetermined? Um, Do we have free will? Like Sean Penn's character gets uh, a transplant, but he's going to die anyway. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it raises a lot of good questions, just like Amoris Peros does. And what I liked about Amoris Peros is, some of the issues that got raised with uh, the brothers, you know, that comes back. There's brothers in the third story, just like you were pointing out. Um, mm-hmm. The idea of cheating in the first story, there's cheating in uh, the second story, okay. people walking away from their family. And these same themes are in this movie. You find out um, that one character desperately wants to have a child, uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg, who is with Sean Penn. Uh, you know, yeah. he had been unfaithful in the past. She's with him when he's sick. What does he owe her? And what does she owe him? I mean, you could like, this would be a good one to show to like philosophy students or religion students or ethics uh, to write about. Um, it's a movie that I think inspires a lot of great thinking. It's I think 21 Grams... Amores Peros is definitely the better film, but it's yeah. like one of those movies you go to and you think the best part of the evening is probably the coffee shop after it ends where you can all sit around and talk about it and what you just saw yeah. and what it meant. I think it's one of those great, you know, talk all night movies. I, yes. Uh, I, yes. I love that about it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you, especially those those questions that arises, uh, the philosophical ones. And yeah. you, you do wonder, I was thinking at some point, and I don't know what it, say, what it says about me, maybe I'm just too tired, or my no. heart's gone dark. But you do get to think, while well, the champagne character needs his heart transplant, did the Benicio del Toro character by killing and running over these people in the indirect way help him get that transplant it's just it's dark yeah yes it's very dark and i don't want to think that way but i just can't help it and 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 yes it's one of those films that 
it does leave you thinking it, it leaves you thinking a lot because like like we were saying the the champagne character he gets the transplant and then he ends up following the wife of the man who was mm-hmm. murdered whose heart he has now and yeah. it's just you're like what I know it's like everyone has probably seen that movie Return to Me. It's like it's not the lovely uh, David Duchovny yeah. mini driver romance that's emotional. And no, this is like the dark side of that. Like I'm following yes. to find out who got my heart or or actually she doesn't. He's finding out uh, whose heart he has. Yeah. Finds the widow and they hook up. It's like, whoa. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yes. And yeah. And then just to top it off what the the partner that he had sleeves because of his infidelity and then he ends up getting the wife pregnant <laughs> i know isn't that <laughs> ironic yeah <laughs> yes yes it was just yeah it, it's one of those films that certainly it's just so much to talk about in terms of, of the events that happened. And mm-hmm. it, it could have been done in a more, more on a more tightly manner uh, way, particularly how it unfolded. But there's no very doubt that these characters and, and, and their stories are very much memorable because never in a million years would I have thought that this movie was going to be about this. No, <laughs> I remember they actually did put the voiceover in the trailer. And I think it was because when you heard, oh, Sean Penn's in 21 Grams and you just flash back to early Sean Penn and like Falcon and the Snowman where he's playing mm-hmm. a drug dealer and you're like, oh, yeah. it's just Sean Penn doing his thing. And yeah. Uh, no, yeah, he's a mathematician. And uh, it's yes. funny, in the movie, he's like the supposed to be the uh, the guy on the, you know, the status quo and mm-hmm. just like Del Toro, you never know who somebody really is. And yeah. the movie raises those questions. Yeah. Yeah. That's really great. Yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to be sure to mention about Iniratu or <sighs> the film? No. I mean, okay. I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, what else can <laughs> I think yeah. we, we said uh, plenty about these films? And... Yes. I mean, without a doubt, I think Amores Perros is definitely the best film, yes. but it does not take away from the dynamic no. and the characters of this movie that were just mm-hmm. out of this world. I never yes. thought it would have been something like this. Yeah, the writing yeah. is unbelievable. Exactly. Good. It's the writing and, and the acting. Oh, my God, that acting. Oh, I think the ensemble might have won um, Independent Spirit Awards, or I remember them all walking up. This. Oh really? Yeah, and I Makes think it sense. was. I mean, you got Melissa yes. Dio, um, just Naomi Watts, of course, Sean Penn, wow. Benicio del Toro, Charlotte Gainsbourg, Eddie Marsan. It's just, uh, yeah, stacked. Yeah, stacked. Stack. Very, very phenomenal acting. Well, obviously, we just touched on a few of these films because otherwise we'd be here for a month and, you know, I can't eat up Rosa's entire life here. But before we wrap it up, are there any other favorites, curiosities or even collaborations as producers or et cetera made by these three you want to be sure to recommend people check out? Um, Yes, I think for for Iñárritu... Amores Perros is certainly a great one, but I think what he does in Babel is also groundbreaking. I know. Uh, what he does in that film with yes. 
different countries, different cultures, different languages. And yet I was still able to follow along and everything. And it, it made sense to me. And, and the fact that a Mexican director would go out there and just film in different countries and regardless of his language barrier, whether it's Japanese or sign language or any, yes. the, any of the other countries and to make it work, it, it's just nah, mind boggling. And again, because it, it's more on a global scale, Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a movie that it does feel relatable in a sense it, it, it does have that social political narrative more of immigration and it, it looks yeah. into how miscommunication can lead to to mis, mis, misinterpretation of things and, and, and the language barrier how all that has a lot to do and of course we continue to see all these relationships particularly parent-children dynamics we see it all along yeah. in that film yeah. and I, 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 for for Iñárritu, I've seen, well, now I've seen all of his films. Oh, I'm so proud. There you go. Um, <laughs> but I think it, it's Babel and Amores Perros, the ones that stick out to me the most out of him. Yeah. Um, and like I previously mentioned, Del Toro, one of my personal favorites. Of course, there's Pan's Labyrinth. Nobody can deny what Pan's Labyrinth is mm-hmm. um, for, for, for Del Toro. But my personal favorite is Cronos, um, his directorial okay. debut. Yeah. And for for Cuaron, I mean, we we just mentioned. I think Children of Man is just. I, I know I shouldn't be using the M word too much, but it's it is a masterpiece. masterpiece. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. No, you're fine. Yeah, yeah. Babel. I have not seen since the theater. I don't think, but it was so brilliant. I remember the story. The in Japan really hit me yeah. hard. Yeah, it's yeah amazing what he did with that film. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're all he, great. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They do explore all three of them. They, they, they all have their unique styles. They all have their preferred methods of narrative, visual storytelling, um, filmmaking techniques. But overall, they're, they're all talented. And I love the fact that they, they can collaborate with one another and they can just ask advice and just inspire just yeah have each other yeah to, to inspire one another and it's just fascinating it's just very inspiring very inspiring yeah. and we're so lucky that they do have that relationship because then we get to reap the benefits yes exactly <laughs> we yeah. are the true winners here <laughs> yes <laughs> let's not forget we're the real story no no but we are as uh film goers we're just so lucky yeah yeah absolutely yes, I agree well, thank you so much, Rosa. This was so much fun. And I, I ate up your whole night. I apologize for that. But I really no. love talking to you. No, thank you. Um, you know what? When it comes to films and, and so on, I do not mind talking, especially to you. Um, I, I, had a, <laughs> I had a blast, blast talking to you about these extraordinary filmmakers. And I could not be more happy and, and excited that you actually invited me to be on your podcast. I, oh. I am truly, truly, truly honored. Oh, you're welcome back anytime. <laughs> Thank you. We can do another two films of each. <laughs> I know. There's enough there. No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.